0: The sun will faster, only next everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner, and I am the Militant Thomist. So, we are going to be going over an interesting article. Uh, Interesting is is one way of of putting it. Uh, It's by Timothy Flanders, um, and it's his article, as I linked below, The Pre-Vatican II Decline of Theology. So I guess before I get started, because I probably, I'm sorry, I'm just closing a bunch of tabs right now. I don't know why I have so many opened. Um, before we get started, I will state a little bit of my interest in this, and I guess kind of uh, why you should why you should even care what I have to say about the manualists. Well, um, ever since I started reading Catholic theology, um, and that would have been... When I first started undergrad, I started reading St. Thomas's works um, in line with a lot of the reformed scholastics when I was still Protestant. Uh, I'd been looking a lot for resources. Uh, Resources are very important. Um, Works of Catholic theology are very important. And eventually I stumbled upon uh, the neoscholastics the manualists whatever how, whatever uh, moniker you want to give them although properly speaking uh, manualists just refer to a certain type of um, method of of writing theology but in reading these manualists i was able to have uh, right before me in an orderly manner a lot of the contents a lot of the various distinctions and divisions and arguments for um, each one of the theses of theology that I was struggling with. So I progressed um, light years ahead of how I was trying to go uh, about things before, um, searching through very uh, disconnected sort of argumentation. Um, so the manualists have been very important to me personally when it's come to my conversion and then, also, when it comes to what I do here um, on a more professional note, um, if you go to my website, ChristianB.Wagner.com, what you will see, let's see, what you will see right here under shop is, let's see if it loads, I am the editor of a lot of manuals, um, trying to bring a lot of them back. A lot of um, and then I have just dozens and dozens more that I have uh, that I am currently um, looking to fix up. So I have a lot of experience reading these manuals. Um, I have a lot of experience editing these manuals. I have a lot of experience going through um, to construct a lot of what I write from the manuals. So I am very um, indebted to them and I'm also very comfortable with them. So, to read what Timothy Flanders said, I know a lot of what he says is completely off the mark. It's not true. So, I will be going through a lot of examples from these manuals. Uh, Some of them, since they can't really be proved, per se, because it's hard to say, okay, look at through these hundreds of different works, there's this certain trend. So, a lot of it will be just pro-trust, but... Uh, I will keep keep that to a minimum, where I will at least try to provide examples. And then I'll also show you where to go if you want to make sure that I'm not just making a lot of this stuff up. You can go, and nobody is stopping you from going and reading these yourself to see for yourself how theology was done for a large portion of the post-Tridentine to Vatican II church. So I will check the comments and then I will get right into this article. Okay. Or is this a reaction against Orthodox polemics online? No, no, this is not. Yeah. Timothy Flanders is Catholic. So this is more of a reaction against a certain group of trads who do not like the manuals too much, weirdly enough. But they really like Father Lagrange. Somehow that works out. And yeah, I don't, I don't even know how the, how to even class this group of trads. But it is very sad. So, and then also as a brief note to begin with, um, there's actually a good set of Acontis sites, who uh, aren't too bad. When it comes to just uh, theory, when it comes to the manuals, the WM review, right here, I'll send the link. It's their article, uh, Theology Manuals, Why Are They So Important in the Post-Conciliar Crisis? What you're going to see is that these manuals, There you go. There's the article. What you're going to see is that these manuals are they have magisterial backing to them. The way in which you would think about local catechisms approved by certain bishops or groups of bishops are going to be the level authority of these of these theological manuals. They are very authoritative. So to speak against these manuals, uh, it it is not at all prudent. Uh, These these are not just the toying around of some individual theologians this is really uh, an act of the magisterium itself on the level of the episcopacy or sometimes the level of groups of bishops when it comes to approving what is in in seminaries so these are very authoritative so reading that article is very interesting when it comes to a lot of the the positive sort of doctrine that comes about uh with this okay So I'm going to, this is from Timothy Flanders, June 7th, 2022, on 1 Peter 5, the pre-Vatican II decline of theology. So if we want to address the problem of hyper-uber-ultramontanism, we are going to need to talk about a decline in theology that occurred before Vatican II. We need to understand the roots of these issues and how they developed in our history of Catholicism in modernity. To do that, we have to cover some basics about theology. Let me clear, I'm assuming let me be clear. I'm not a theologian, I'm a Catholic father and layman trying to do my duty to catechize my children and fight against heresy in the public Catholic sphere. Theologians by ancient definition are holy men who know God and thus know wisdom and can bring forth that wisdom to the greater glory of God in the salvation of souls. So right here, I want to stop. I want to stop right here. Because while, while this is in a certain sense a fine definition of what a theologian is. There's going to be this intentional equivocation, which is going to run throughout this entire article. And that's going to be that he is going to equivocate what it means to be a what we may label formal theologian and what it means to be a theologian in the sense of experiential theology. While a formal theologian must be an experiential theologian, it does not go the other way around. So when it comes to the definition, the ancient definition of theology itself, it's going to be a scientia of God and his works. So it's going to be a certain knowledge of first principles in the realm of grace. And then that formal theologian is going to present that uh, after ascending, let's say we can we can express it like this ascending up the mountain of the Lord. He is going to be the one who is able to go back down that mountain and he's going to be able to help drag other people up that mountain. Where with Timothy Flanders definition, he merely has the person who ascends the mountain, not necessarily the person who's able to go down the mountain and bring people back up. So the theologian is able to present the matter of theology in a way in which way in which people can understand and ascend up that mountain themselves. And what I want to do is to real quick look at St. Thomas, because he's going to rely heavily on St. Thomas. But what we're going to see with St. Thomas is that he is going to agree more so with my definition of formal theology, uh, broadly speaking, as being what theology is. He's going to deride it as merely academic theology. We're going to see that's a bit of a silly moniker when it comes to describing theology. So. This is going to be in Thomas's commentary, his exposition of the preface of Boethius's De Trinitate. These four questions are very important. What? No, no, no. It's question two, not question one. These four articles of question two are going to be very important when it comes to how we're understanding the task of the theologian. So the first article, whether divine truths ought to be treated of by method of inquiry. So I answer that it must be said that since the perfection of man consists in his union with God, it is right that man by all the means which are in his power and insofar as he is able mount up to and strive to attain to divine truths so that his intellect may take delight in contemplation and his reason in the investigation of things of God. Notice contemplation is kept with reason. This is going to be the same for how the manualists think of of theology. According to the saying of the psalm, it is a good thing for me to adhere to my God, and so also the philosopher in Ethics 10 opposes the saying of those who maintain that man ought not to concern himself about divine things, but only about such that are human, saying one ought to be wise in regard to man, however, not according to those treating of human affairs alone as a mortal knowing only mortal things, but inasmuch as it is fitting for a mortal man to do so. He ought to do all things according to the best of his powers that are to him. In a threefold manner, however, it is possible for man to err on this point. First, by presumption, since one might enter upon such investigation as if he could obtain a perfect comprehension. And it is this kind of presumption, presumption that is denounced in Job 11.7. And then Hillary says... In the second place, error arises if in matters of faith, reason has precedence of faith and not faith of reason. So the point that one could be willing to believe only what he could know by reason, when the converse ought to be the case. Wherefore, Hillary says, while believing in a spirit of faith, inquire, discuss, carry through your speculation. And now this is going to be important because Timothy Flanders later is going to cause, uh, call the neo-scholastics uh, rationalists. But they are all going to hold this principle of the relationship between faith and reason very strongly. In a third uh, way, error arises from undertaking and inquiring into divine things which are beyond one's capacity. All men indeed have not been accorded the same measure. Wherefore, a thing is beyond the capacity of one ought not to be beyond the capacity of another. Okay, so first, our method of inquiry, whether there can be any science of divine truths, which are matters of faith. And he's going to answer in the, I answer that, since the essence of science consists in this, that from things known, a knowledge of things previously unknown is derived And this may occur in relation to divine truths. Evidently, there can be a science of divine things, but knowledge of divine truths can be thought of in two ways. In one way, as on our part, since truths are not not knowable except from created things, of which we have a knowledge derived from sense experience, and another way on the part of the nature of these things themselves. They are in themselves most knowable. And although they are not known by us according to their essences, they are known by God and by the blessed according to their proper mode. And so science of divine things must be concerned in a twofold manner. One is according to our mode of knowledge in which knowledge of sensible things serves as the principle for coming to a knowledge of divine. And it was in this way the philosophers handed down a traditional science of divine things, calling uh, first philosophy a divine science. Notice first philosophy is in reference to metaphysics. The other mode to that of divine things themselves, as they are understood in themselves. This is indeed a mode of knowledge which we cannot perfectly possess in this life. But there is for us, even in this life, a certain participation and assimilation of such a cognition of divine truths, inasmuch as through the faith which is infused in our souls, we adhere to the very first truth on account of itself. And as God, since he knows himself, knows in a way that is his own, that is by simple intuition, not by discursive thought. So we, from those truths that we possess in adhering to first truth, come to a knowledge of other truths, according to our own mode of cognition, namely by proceeding from principles to conclusions. Okay, so this, that right there, what I just highlighted is going to be very, 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 very important when it comes to this, which is why the manualists were so good. Because what they did is they had those first principles, those first truths by faith, and they formed it by understanding. So what they did is they took those articles of faith as premises, and then through some sort of discursive process, which is the mode in which we think, they applied those laws of law, logic in bringing uh, from premise to conclusion, premise to conclusion, premise to conclusion. You see this explicitly highlighted in something like the Sacred Theologia Summa, which was a mid 20th century manual, where you have those premises of faith, which are drawn to, to, uh, to certain other theses as conclusions. And these are drawn, and then these are drawn, and then these are drawn, using, uh, in some cases, the minor premise is an object of reason. And in other cases, they're merely just using the the discursive process of logic, because they were uh, so formed by their philosophical backgrounds that they were able to do this. And they're just following what St. Thomas says here. Wherefore, those truths... That we hold in the first place by faith or for us, as it were first principles in this science. Notice in the science of theology, those truths of faith are first principles and the other truths to which we attain are quasi conclusions. From this, it is evident that the science is of a higher order than that which the philosophers traditionally term divine since it proceeds from higher principles. So, the philosophers, when they come at um, when they come at the natural theology, what they do is they come from natural principles, principles which are noble by reason. But in theology, what we do is we don't proceed on a different methodology when it comes to that reasoning process, which is shared because we are uh, rational animals, and that is the way in which we discursively think, as he says. But when it comes to the science of theology, what happens is we use those natural processes of reason, the same one we use in natural philosophy, but the principles are higher. We are coming from those principles of faith, which are given to us in the virtue of faith. So it is truly faith formed by understanding. Okay, and then three, whether in the science of faith, which concerns God, is permissible to use the rational arguments of the natural philosophers. Let's see what he says about this. I know there was one I was thinking of skipping. Is it this one? No, this one's very important. We're going to get an entire theological methodology from this. It's really great. And then four is going to be a real uh, a real kicker for you guys. I answer that. It must be said that gifts of grace are added to those of nature in such a way as they do not destroy the latter, but rather perfect them. Wherefore, also the light of faith, which is gratuitously infused into our minds, does not destroy the natural light of cognition, which is in us by nature. For although the natural light of the human mind is insufficient to reveal those truths revealed by faith, yet it is impossible that those things which God has manifested to us by faith could be contrary to those which are evident to us by natural knowledge. In this case, one would necessarily be false. And since both kinds of truth are from God, would be the, God would be the author of error, a thing which is impossible. Rather, since in imperfect things, there is found some imitation of the perfect, though the image is deficient. In those things known by natural reason, there are certain similitudes of the truth revealed by faith. Now, as sacred doctrine is founded upon the light of faith, so philosophy depends upon the light of natural reason. Wherefore, it is impossible that philosophical truths are contrary to those that are of faith, but they are deficient as compared to them. Nevertheless, they incorporate some similitudes of those higher truths and some things that are preparatory for them, just as nature is the preamble to grace. If, however, anything is found in the teaching of the philosophers contrary to faith, this error does not properly belong to philosophy, but is due to an abuse of philosophy owing to the insufficiency of reason. Therefore, also it is possible from the principles of philosophy to refute an error of this kind, either by showing it to be altogether impossible, or not to be necessary. For just as those things which are of faith cannot be demonstratively, demonstratively proved, so certain things contrary to them cannot be demonstrably shown to be false, but they are shown not to be necessary. Thus, in sacred doctrine, we are able to make a threefold use of philosophy. Okay, good, good, good. First, to demonstrate these truths that are the preambles of faith, and that have a necessary place in the science of faith, such are the truths about God that can be proved by natural reason that God exists, that God is one. Such truths about God or about his creatures, subject to philosophical proof, faith presumes. Second, to give a clearer notion by certain similitudes of the truths of faith, as Augustine, in his book uh, De Trinitate, employed any comparisons taken from the teaching of the philosophers to aid in the understanding of the Trinity. Third, to resist those who speak against the faith, either by showing that their statements are false or by showing that they are not necessarily true. Nevertheless, in the use of philosophy and sacred scripture, there can be a twofold error. In one way, by using doctrines contrary to faith, which are not truths of philosophy, but rather error or abuse of philosophy, as Origen did. In another way, by using them in such a manner as to include under the measure of philosophy truths of faith as if one should be willing to believe nothing except that could be uh, held by philosophical reasonings. Once on the contrary, philosophy should be subject to the measure of faith. According to the saying of the apostle, bringing into captivity every understanding unto obedience in Christ. Okay. And then now article four. So this is just kind of providing that framework of how St. Thomas thinking about theology and explaining especially the relationship of philosophy to theology. Okay. And then whether divine truths ought to be concealed by new and obscure words. Actually, I don't, you guys can read this one on your own about concealing divine truths in new and obscure words. But this is like the opposite of the way in which we think, but uh, this will, this will be a, a, a good lesson. I feel like, I saw something in one of the responses, I can't remember. I always do this, always get distracted by these. Okay, actually, actually I won't use it. Okay, sorry about that, I just got distracted real quick. So another important text to look at is, again, these are all texts nobody ever reads, unfortunately, you guys should really read them. Um, uh refutate no it's not is it this one refutation no it's against the imp- impuners of an apology for yeah book against the impuners of the divine cult and religion so in chapter 11 in you know, chapter 12 Attacks brought against religious on account of their systematic method of preaching. So there were other peoples before before Timothy Flanders. Um, There were were many peoples who didn't like this uh, very systematic method of presentation when it comes to theology. But um, we will now consider and examine those objections brought against religious on the score of their methodical and carefully prepared manner of preaching. People don't like that. And be, that's that's it's kind of ironic because this is like the objection, which is you're going to see like mud, dusty and dry snoring manuals. They're so boring because of how methodical and systematic they are. It's so stupid and boring and I hate it. Well, there were people before you who were um, who were against methodical and careful uh, methods. And we shall see. Mm hmm is going to answer that the foregoing arguments may be answered by the following words of St. Jerome addressed to the great orator of Rome. What cause do you have to wonder? The saint asks that at times we in our little writings adduce examples drawn from the literature of the world, or that we sully the whiteness of the church by the defilement of heathen authors. You would stop marveling at our acting. Thus, were you not wholly possessed by Tully and ignorant of scripture and of their commentators? voloctius accepted who does not know that Moses and the prophets quote from the books of the Gentiles and that Solomon makes use of philosophers citing of their opinions and refuting others. St. Jerome then proceeds to show from the time of the apostles, the canonical writers and their exponents, have mingled human wisdom and eloquence with sacred scripture. When he has enumerated a long list of writers who have thus acted, he concludes by saying, All these have so filled their books with the saying of the philosophers that it is difficult to know which most to admire in them, their secular learning or their knowledge of scripture. At the end of his epistle, St. Jerome adds, I beg you therefore to remind him who finds fault with us on this score that it is unwise for a toothless man to envy the teeth of those who eat, or for a mole to grudge eyes to the goat. Hence, it follows that it is commendable to make use of human eloquence and wisdom in the divine service and that they who blame others for so doing resemble blind men who envy those who can see and ignorant men who blaspheme against what they cannot understand, as we read in the Epistle of St. Jude. This is and again, this talks about eloquence uh, in speech, but it's pretty clear that uh, he is referencing um, the scholastic method of presenting knowledge because. If, if you read these guys, they definitely weren't uh, super eloquent um, in the way that we would think about eloquence. So uh, I think this is uh, the way in which we can respond to a lot of these m- neo-scholastic haters. We can respond with the words of St. Thomas. Hence it follows that it is commendable to make use of human eloquence and wisdom the divine service. And that they who blame others for so doing resemble blind men who envy those who cannot, who can see. And ignorant men who blaspheme against what they cannot understand. That's what they're doing. They are blind when it comes to that methodology, which was established in the Catholic schools. Some of the best methodology ever conceived when it comes to the strict organization of knowledge and when it comes to the presentation of that knowledge for pedagogical purposes. So they they resemble those who they're blind and all they're doing is railing against those who can see. That is what you get when it comes to the people who hate on the neo-scholastics. They are merely blind. And they are hating those who can see they're ignorant and they're hating those who are learned that that's that's plainly what you get. And then he brings about a lot of other. um, A lot of other uh, um, witnesses to this, but that is all when it comes to that. Okay, I'm just looking at the, just looking at the response. Timothy Flanders comes off as a great guy. He's a good guy for sure. Yeah, why not just ask him? I mean, I'd be interested if he's up to it, um, up to talking about it. But I think it's just, uh, I think a lot of this stuff does come from ignorance rather than from uh, malice. So I hope this is more of a correcting thing. It doesn't come off as uh, me being rude. Okay, let us continue. My expertise in academic training, rather, is in history and linguistics. So I can look at history and the history of theology, as well as the public statements of the magisterium, and compare that with theology, as it is done today. You don't have to be a theologian to understand what went wrong. But just to be clear, I've talked with respected theologians who agree with what I'm about to say. I don't want to be a theologian. I just want theologians to act like theologians. If that happened, as we will see. We'll be able to resolve issues, I think. Okay, when it comes to public statements of the magisterium, you're going to see the way in which that magisterium acted back then is extremely favorable towards, uh, towards the manuals. Um, is, is you're getting a lot of acts from local bishops, which is the, the lowest end of the magisterium when it comes to bringing forth these these texts um, in the seminaries. Is that itself is going to be a magisterial act. And then, um, what else do I want to make a comment on? I just want theologians to act like theologians. Well, I'm going to show you that they actually were acting like theologians. And I think the the revitalization of the manuals and when it comes to the manualist tradition um, is going to be a big part when it comes to getting uh, getting us out of a lot of the mess that we have have today, because a lot of the stuff was cool and new. But um, back back when it first came out of of hating the manuals, but um, we see we definitely lost a treasure when it comes to the training and education of theologians and priests. So theologian man of prayer. Let's see my notes, if I missed anything. Okay. The office of theologian in the church, as I said, was the same thing as a holy man, a saint. St. Anthony of the Desert was a theologian, even though he was illiterate. Notice this is, again, an equivocation. He was a holy man, and thus he communed with wisdom himself and could bring forth this wisdom for the church. This came from the contemplation of God and unceasing prayer and the meditation of God in Holy Scripture. Again, we're going to see this in St. Thomas when he talks about contemplation. That yes, yes, we're all. We, nobody's disagreeing with this. So the Desert Fathers were theologians par excellence. We prayed the entire Holy Psalter every day, as St. Benedict mentions in his rule. Thus, it is said that the office of bishop was reserved for a man who had memorized the entire Psalter. That proved he was a theologian since he was a man of prayer. Other such theologians would memorize the entire scripture as they were constantly praying the scripture and contemplating God. So the scholastic way of contemplation. The church fathers followed this model, and so did the scholastics. In the days of St. Thomas Aquinas, there had developed an academic method to prove a theologian. His prayer life was tested by writing a commentary on the most famous book of wisdom after the Holy Scripture, the sentences of Peter Lombard. This text was a string of patristic commentary on Holy Scripture. Um, Not, not exactly. Um, it's more of like uh, collecting the the low sigh of patristic. Um, really, the the patristic commentary on Holy Scripture is going to be the glossa um, rather than the sentences. The sentences is really um, theological statements uh, made by the fathers. And uh, there, there's my volume one. Of the sentences, there it is. So, as you can see, I've read it. I don't have all the sticky notes, of J. Dyer though. So, yeah, you you'll just have to trust. So commentary here means an act of wisdom based on scripture, which is the fruit of holy contemplation of God. Theologians of St. Thomas's day earned their stripes by writing their own commentaries on the sentences as an act of wisdom. It was understood that this uh, was not merely an academic discipline. Yes, as we've always understood. Everybody's always understood this. No, theology was the fruit of prayer. Theology was prayer. Um, What? I've always been confused by this part of it. Oh, not merely an academic discipline, no. Uh, I think the ad kind of obscures the point. I think that's that's the problem. I don't think it's any unclearness on the part of Flanders. Theology was the fruit of prayer. Theology was prayer. St. Thomas writes how the gift of wisdom is the perfection of charity because charity unites us with God who gives wisdom to the saints who know him. A theologian who was judged to be a man of prayer and wisdom was given the title... um, It's Magister and Sacred Scriptura, so it should be Master of Sacred Scripture, but Master of Scripture is fine. Thus could a theologian pray Sacred Scripture and know God and bring forth wisdom. And now here is where things start to get dicey, because everybody can agree, uh, I think, for the most part with what was above, except the minor problem with uh, equivocation. But here is where we run into some problems down here. I'm going to check the, the, uh, nothing in the comments okay i'll continue through the work of occam and especially luther however theology lost its basis in prayer and became merely an academic exercise okay this is where it gets dicey um uh, to i don't know how to so there's there's no source given to this there's no reasonable explanation given to this there's no how there's no Train of thought, which is given to how you lead to this conclusion that Occam through Luther ruined theology. There's there's none of that. There is no way in which I could verify this claim. And in reality. This narrative of from Occam, it, it might be from SCOTUS to Occam to Luther or from Occam to Luther or whatever. It shows a it's, it's a common uh, sentence which is given but it shows an ignorance of the sources when it comes to both Luther and Occam. Philosophically, which is where most people point, Occam and Luther couldn't be further apart. Luther was much more uh, platonic uh, to Occam's nominalism. The two are not similar when it comes to how they think philosophically, which is where most people are going to point to. And if you look in Occam's Ordinatio, which is going to be in the prologue to his Ordinacio, uh, it is translated uh, by Peter Simpson if you wanted to check this out. But he defines theology. Uh, he says, uh, I say that all truths necessary for man as wayfarer, so to attain eternal beatitude, are theological truths. So again, uh, theological truths are going to be defined not in this merely academic way if you read through his prologue i believe it's going to be in his question one question one of his prologue in his ordinatio you're going to see that he is going to have a perfectly fine definition of theology he is going to draw significantly from saint augustine in de trinitate the way in which he defines theology and it's going to be basically the same as everybody else it's not going to be any sort of special, um, Occam ruining everything. So, uh, interestingly, uh, this is a lot like how Flanders is going to define theology. So, um, I wouldn't, uh, although I wouldn't say that Flanders is being an Occamite here, uh, but if he was being consistent, that is how we would define Flanders definition of theology is Occamite. So, uh, Further, uh, it is clear from reading Luther's works that he actually falls into the opposite error um, when it comes to the relationship between philosophy and theology. Luther is far from a rationalist with the way in which he thinks about theology, especially in his early writings, although uh, through the later portions of his life, through the influence of Melanchthon, you see him... You see him mellow out on the relationship between philosophy and theology. A lot, a lot, a lot. From his early comments about how I'm smarter than St. Thomas on Aristotle. And Aristotle's enemy of grace. And you you, you know all the quotes. Uh, usually it's from quote minds. But if you read, let me think. I think it's on his Babylonian captivity where he writes about that. I can't remember where those sentences come from. But if you just read his... Uh, his big first three, his what is it? His fifteen twenty-one treatises, the three treatises he wrote in like one year. Is it his fifteen twenty-one treatises that you're going to get a lot of this stuff from Luther, falling into the opposite error? Fifteen twenty. It was his 1520 treatises, not his 1521. So it's going to be his Babylonian captivity address to the Christian nobility and on the freedom of a Christian or on Christian freedom is how usually I've seen it phrased. So yeah, those. if you read his 1520 treatises, you're going to get a lot of ideas of, of how the early, early Luther is thinking about these things. And it's definitely not rationalistic. It's almost the almost the opposite of rationalistic. Okay, I will continue. It was then used by the power of rebellious princes to justify their revolt against the magisterium. Again, there's, there's no evidence given of this. These false theologians were no longer masters of scripture, but academics of scripture. Again, you're going to see even in, even in reformed thought and Lutheran thought, this is definitely not true. You can say what you want about the reformed and the Lutherans. Yes, I believe they were heretics, and most of them are probably damned, to be perfectly honest. But the ability to mesh together theology and praxis was a huge strong point when it came to, uh, especially the Puritans, what also came to a lot of Lutheran divines. If you look at Gerhard's meditations, for example, or if you look at Petrus von Maastricht in his um, Theoretica Practical Theology, you're going to see that this is this is never even in the realm of anybody's thought of theology is a merely academic exercise. Nobody was thinking like this. It is crazy to have people thinking to to say that people think like this back during the time of Luther and Occam. And even up till uh, you're going to you're going to get some of this when it comes to uh, the the German rationalists. But before that, no, it's just insane to, to talk like this. Uses pawns by the powers that uh, be to further their ends, as Scott Hahn and Benjamin Wicker show in an important work. What is this? Politicizing the Bible, the roots of historical criticism and the secularization, secularization of scripture. Interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. It looks like a good book. I definitely read that. Okay. This eventually culminated in the suppression of the Jesuits, and this is this is this is where it gets um a bit uh to to put it bluntly, a bit uh, crazy. Um, some of the conclusions he's going to draw from this is just insane. This eventually culminated in the suppression of the Jesuits and the subsequent secularization of Catholic education, because the classical Jesuits controlled so many institutions of public education the secularizing state was able to steal whole libraries and public works of the church severely limiting its own ability to train its own theologians i'm going to show later how that's just nuts that's just absolutely nuts by the time Pius XII, Pius the seventh reversed this grievous masonic conspiracy the jesuits and others of the 19th century we're trying to play catch-up to a constant bloody revolution through the 19th century. Countless libraries were looted, monasteries attacked, and resources lost. The situation became so dire that Louis XIII had to write attorney patries on the restoration of the Christian philosophy to try to pick up the pieces after the Masons finally invaded the Vatican and took over the papal states. The theology of neo-Thomism was the fruit of this effort, which produced the greatest Thomistic theologian of ever, but he's going to say of the 20th century. I'll forgive him for saying of the 20th century, but it's really of ever. He's more Thomistic than St. Thomas. Father Reginald Marie garrigou Lagrange. This was a man worthy of the title theologian, a man of prayer and wisdom. who could describe the three ages of the interior life because he himself was a holy man. He was a Thomist who truly imitated St. Thomas. He was indeed a master of scripture. And it's, I, I think there's a bit of, Almost brutal irony when it comes to citing Father Lagrange as your as your example of a true Thomist. As you dislike the manuals, because Father Lagrange, oh my, Father Lagrange, he was the manualist. Oh my, he was. He was the guy when it comes to his allegiance to the school of Thomism, his allegiance to the the Thomas before him, many of whom wrote in that same exact um, style that you're going to get when it comes to Father Lagrange's allegiance to them. It was strict, 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 strict. He wouldn't dare go one syllable away from the Thomas who came before him and from a lot of them who wrote in the manual style. Although uh, usually he's more um, in line with the, uh, the the commentators, but yes, Father Lagrange, oh man, he was he was the guy, and I have actually a quote where where he writes about his predecessors in theology, and I want I want to note very clearly what he says because uh, this is actually in his Three Ages of the Interior Life that I read and. Uh, it, the reading, reading this was just like this is yes, this is the theologians. Um, this this is the end of theology, right here. This is this is what everybody ought to be doing who call themselves theologians. So he says, quote, we find here something similar to that which occurs in intellectual culture, for many adequate theological training is given by a manual that can be studied in three years, and that one does not feel impelled to reread because all it contains is quickly exhausted. Who can claim the perfection of theological culture is found in such a study? Others can satisfy the demands of their minds only by a profound study of St. Thomas and of his principal commentators. This study is necessary, neither an extraordinary undertaking nor a luxury for them. It is necessary for the training of their minds. They realize that even if they spend their, all their lives teaching the Summa Theologica, written though it is for novices, they will never exhaust it. Will never arrive at a complete grasp of its breadth, height, and depth. To do so would require an intellect equal to that of the master. To comprehend is to equal, said Raphael. To study the tract on grace, some will consecrate three months to it and scarcely ever return to it. Others understand that the work of a lifetime will not suffice to penetrate what the doctors of the church wish to tell us about this great mystery. So notice, is Gary Lagrange. Is he saying manual is bad? No, no, no. He is saying that there was a certain way in which some people were using the manuals. They were using it, just reading through it once and then throwing it down. That was not the proper way of using it. But he never says that the manuals were bad. He is saying that that project of constantly going back and uh, and contemplating and studying those principal commentators on St. Thomas, that that is the way in which a theologian works, not just by quick reading, reading through the manuals, which almost any uh, sort of um, any sort of theological method can be abused in this way, even uh, just reading through Gary Goulagrange's works just once and not uh, rereading and restudying is going to be harmful. So it's not it's not anything that he's saying bad about the, the manuals themselves. Okay, so the excesses of Neotomism, and this is where, oh man, this is where, this is where uh, it gets really bad. So I'll try to, I'll try to restrain myself on this one. But because of the constant revolution and lack of resources... So what Flanders is going to say is, remember, a few paragraphs up, he talked about the fact that there was Masonic revolutions, and therefore, he's going to conclude, the Neotomists. Oh, sorry, I just accidentally hit John Henry Newman. The Neotomists, they just had no resources. Lacked, res- lacked resources, they are all destroyed. No resources. But that is one of the craziest things to claim about the Neotomus is that they lacked resources. It's the exact opposite. The absolute immensity of their resources is staggering. You really just have to look at the footnotes and the bibliographies of any of these manuals, and you'll see the works cited are just crazy it the the amount of works that they were reading and integrating into their systems was just immense more than any other generation before them ever had if anybody lacked resources um it's going to be the a lot of the medieval scholastics who do who did suffer from a lack of resources um which which is, which is really not their fault. Uh, the fact that they were able to do uh, what they were able to do is um, immense, and it just shows the work of the Holy Spirit amongst the scholastics. But to claim that they lacked resources is crazy. Uh, first, uh, you can look at the Set of, uh, I definitely pronounced his name wrong, but look at the Patrologia uh, Latina and the Patrologia Greca. Just, just look at them. And then the, uh, I think it's the Patrologiae uh, the Orient, Orientalis, the, with the, Orient, the Oriental Fathers. Just look at that work that was done. Just an absolute masterpiece. The best collection of the Church Fathers ever made was during this time. The best one. The, the amount of output they had with critical editions of the Church Fathers was, was amazing. Amazing for what they did. Many of the works in there have not had a critical edition since. And it just, it just shows the, the resourcement of a lot of these people. And, and if you read, if you read a lot of, for example, uh, the Roman congregation theologians, if you look at Perone and Frangelin, these guys were these guys knew the church fathers better than the resource mont did. The resource mont can claim like, oh, I'm reading my church fathers uh, again. Nobody ever done that before us. The neo classics were big dumb. They never read the church fathers, but these guys, with the amount of work they did in Latin and Greek and Oriental fathers, they in the amount of resources they pulled together into a lot of their work on. um bringing together patristic and dogmatic theology, it was, just, it was just amazing. You could also look of the, uh, the Odicia Leonina of St. Thomas's works, which is another uh, amazing accomplishment, bringing together an entire edition of St. Thomas's works. And then you had the complete works of Scotus, Occam, Cajetan, Suarez, Abelard, Hugh of St. Victor, Richard of St. Victor, Anselm, and quite literally hundreds of other patristic medieval and post-Tridentine authors were produced in this time. So th- it was the exact opposite of lacking resources. It is nuts to claim that they lacked resources. The amount of critical editions produced in this time were, were crazy. It uh, was one of the greatest flowerings of, of historical scholarship ever done was during this time when it came to the history of theology. So... And then also he says, but because of the constant revolution lack of resources, Neotomism had some excess in practice. There were far too many theologians who were Thomists in name only, getting fast food PhDs over the summer. This claim of a lack of educational rigor in a lot of these Neotomists—that is just. I can't even imagine that Timothy Flanders has done any sort of fair study of of these guys and have read about their lives because I, the, the educational rigor of a 19th century university was immense. Your average doctor in sacred theology, which most of these guys had their, um, had their STD, which is uh, sacred Theologia doctore. So not, not sexually transmitted disease. Um, a lot of these guys who had their STDs, they had studied theology for a decade, getting their STBs, their SDLs, their STDs. And then they also had spent at least two years studying philosophy. And many of them also had advanced degrees in canon law or philosophy. Uh, it, it was it, to say that they had fast food PhDs is frankly offensive. It's just an absolute slap in the face because what you have to remember, uh, and this and this is directly to you, Timothy. We have to remember is these are fellow Catholics that you're speaking about in this article. These are men who dedicated their entire lives to the study of God. These are men who had immense suffering and immense labors. You think about Franzelin. Franzelin, when he walked around Rome, he was famous. For the rigor of his study. I think it's either Franslin or Perone. That is famous for this story. But he kept the rule of the society of Jesus. So strictly. That he wouldn't even allow himself the allotted recreation. He would just sit and study. During all that time. In order to further the science of theology. That's what he did. That's what he spent his time on. These men gave up their entire lives to this study. That's what they did, and these are, the these are all fellow Catholics that we're thinking about. These are all fellow Catholics. You you really need to think about how you're how you're talking about them. This is utter calumny. It, it plain and simple. These guys, many of which were saints, many of which taught saints, many of which were friends with saints. You have to recognize what you're saying when you speak against these guys like this these aren't games that we're playing uh th- this is serious when you talk against them like this when when you just utterly straw man their entire you just make these almost disgusting ad hominem attacks against their lives I I urge you to, to just take this article down issue an apology Co- come on man this is not this is not okay this is not okay at all this is this is really sad to, to even read this and then let us continue um, and reading from the manuals to their yawning students that again th- that's even even more wrong than the last statement what what you had in the, the the pedagogical theory which was which was developed and then applied in the in the schools Of that time. It had been the culmination of over a millennium of development from the very time of Charlemagne when it came to the question of how we are going to teach seminarians. That this had distilled and had brought out all the impurities of wrong education and had developed the best, the absolute best pedagogical system ever devised by man it was amazing it was much better than anything we can even dream of the worst roman seminary back then is better than our best roman seminary today to to be perfectly frank and then to say that the way in which they lectured was that they read from manuals are you serious have you read any of the accounts of the way in which 19th century seminary classrooms worked, Have you read any of them? I'll give, I'll give an example from Hunter's Outlines of Dogmatic Theology, which was a more popular level um, English theological manual. So he writes, quote, the reader may be interested to see a sketch of the mode employed in many Catholic seminaries uh, in, in, uh, to test the work of the classes in philosophy and theology. A few days notice is given of the date and matter of the disputation. A thesis is selected embodying some point which has been recently treated by the professor. And one student is assigned to defend this thesis while one or more others are assigned to object. We shall call the defendant D and the objectient, uh, ob- objectient O. All of the proceedings are conducted in Latin. Most of your seminarians now uh, fail out of Latin. When the time comes, D. reads the thesis and shortly explains its meaning, bearing and grounds, but usually without noticing the objections that may be made against it. This is the business of O., who has selected two or three that seem to him most telling among such, as he can vent or find by diligently searching in the books of the authors who have written on either side of the controversy. When D. pauses, O. reads the thesis and formally denies it, D. asserts its truth, and thereupon O. makes his attack. This takes the form of a syllogism having for its conclusion the contradictory of the thesis. D repeats the syllogism to show that he has gathered the words correctly, and then gives his answer to such premise, granting, denying, or distinguishing as he sees fit. And then he continues to go on, explaining how this method of disputation was done in the seminaries. This is not the professor standing up there and reading a manual. That is just, to put in a word, that's just stupid to even say that. Okay, give me one second. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, so it, wh- when you when you get the way in which seminaries worked in the nineteenth century, it is the exact opposite. In fact, even in Catholic high schools, you had this sort of disputation going on about metaphysical issues. Like this this wasn't th- no, this is just bad. It's just crazy to even assert this. That's the only way of putting it, is crazy. These Thomas in name only were not masters of scripture but academics of scholastic philosophy come on now in fact many of them neglected the holy scripture itself thinking they could be theologians without the word of god that is that is crazy to say that these guys neglected sacred scripture are you serious do you just read your average theological manual for example, pick up the SDS. The SDS is an, exam- an excellent example of this. Check the proof from scriptures section to a certain thesis and then look at the footnotes. The The interaction that they had from traditional scriptural commentary, such as uh, the theologians, medieval theologians, patristic, the glossa, everything. And then modern critical scholarship is insane. They had that perfect synthesis between the two. Just look at the footnotes and then look also in the interaction they have in the text. They they, they were not ignoring sacred scripture. And in fact, many of these theologians and philosophers also wrote commentaries on scripture. For example, the philosopher, Father Joseph Rickaby. He was known for his work in moral philosophy and metaphysics. He wrote the uh, notes on St. Paul, Corinthians, Galatians and Romans. And in fact, there are an entire series of Stonyhurst scripture manuals, which helped English speakers to understand um, sacred scripture from many of the same men who wrote the Stonyhurst philosophy manuals. So the the use of scripture is, is clear. They, they, they use scripture. They interact with scripture. They wrote commentaries on scripture. This, this wasn't that these guys had no idea about what scripture taught. Um, and, I, and again, I'll, I'll just say it again, is you, if you fear God, Timothy Flanders, you really need to take this down, because talking about fellow Catholics like this, it would be one thing if it's true. If it's true, go ahead and write it. But the calumny by many of these men who, who are legit saints, uh, you, you cannot read some of the prayers which they wrote and some of the other works they wrote. Um, And then some of the, you just can't read their works or the story of their lives and think that these men were like the way that you're representing them. It's just really sad. As a result, certain rationalism crept into this movement. The heresy of modernism, and again, to say that they're rationalists, that's just silly. That's just silly. They, all, they have entire sections in their manuals on the relationship between nature and grace. You just read that. Relationship between philosophy and theology, which is going to be exactly what St. Thomas says. The heresy of modernism produced not only a deserved condemnation from Pope St. Pius X, but also its own neo excesses by way of reaction. Some of these bad Thomists started to target anyone who wasn't a Thomist. Like them as being heretical. Name one. Name one. Because I can show you almost any manual worth its salt is going to have a section in it. I can show you in the SDS. If you look in the SDS, for example, there is going to be a section in it. And it's going to be labeled a magisterial authority of St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's going to have a section in there where it's going to talk about how the debates between the schools was a good thing, not a bad thing. And you're going to get this from theologian after theologian after theologian after theologian. So to say that any of these Thomists were targeting anyone who wasn't a Thomist like them as being heretical, are, are, are you Are you serious? Are you serious? That's utterly, I don't even know how to phrase it and still be nice. It's, it's not smart, not big brain. It, it, that, that is utterly small brain right there to, to say that that's even, to say that even, even, even contemplate the notion that that would be correct. Like, again, these are actual people that you're talking about. These are actual Catholics that you're talking about. You are, you are required in justice represent them fairly you're doing a serious injustice this is sinful behavior to talk about theologians like this it's one thing again if you're being honest and you're representing them fairly it's okay to speak about that like if if they were doing this stuff okay sure write about them but i would dare you to give one example of half the stuff you've said much less speaking in these broad strokes about these different about these different groups it's just insane as mr sire writes in his important text oh you mean the mr sire that was kicked out um, of that one what was that group he was kicked out of for heresy the order of the knights of malta yeah that one writes in his important text Pius X followed up his doctrinal condemnation of modernism with a purging of the Catholic seminaries in which, on the plea of rooting out modernism, anything but the most conventional orthodoxy fell in danger of proscription. Oh, my gosh. Mr. Sire notes how this ended up imposing a strict school of integri- integrism on the middle ground of the church, which was Western clericalist, scholastic, papalist and historically short sighted Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Historically short sighted. These guys are much better historians than you are clearly, Mr. Sire or Mr. Flanders. This overreaction of modernism ended up holding to Thomism as the bastion of orthodoxy. To the extent of considering any lapse from the pure word of St. Thomas as inherently unsound. You know, that's actually not um, these mean neoscholastics. That's a certain man named Pope St. Pius X. Read Attorney, uh, read, uh, not Attorney Potters, read Doctorus Angelici. Read the Magisterium with what they say about St. Thomas and have a fair representation of it. Oh my gosh. Hmm. Uh, And then it gets worse. These excesses led to treating the liturgy and the papacy as abstractions isolated by philosophical distinctions from the realities of true pastoral necessity and the organic continuity and tradition. That is absolutely word salad. It's absolutely word salad with no evidence behind it. What does it mean to treat the liturgy and the papacy as abstractions, isolated by philosophical distinctions from the realities of true pastoral necessity and the organic continuity in tradition? Really, show me how they're not organically continuous with tradition. I would take Franz Lind's, like 75 pages of patristic and medieval citations over my broach that I get in this article. Prove it. I, again, I like that's really all I need to say. Um when it comes to any of the sentences which are brought about here, is if you just ask some of these guys who write pieces like this to just prove what they're saying. Really what they're having is they're having conventional wisdom with no evidence in the, in the facts. If you, if you read any of these manualist, any of these manuals, just pick up, like, I don't know, Hunter is an easy three-volume read. Um, it, it's not insane like Poll or the SDS or anything like that. Hunter should be easy for anybody to read. If you just pick them up and read them, you're not going to get this. This is not what you're going to come away with thinking, man, these guys are uh, are uh, uh, treating the liturgy and papacy as abstractions isolated from philosophical distinctions. And they have no organic continuity with tradition or true pastoral necessity. That's it's crazy. No, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that. It reduced the liturgy to a bare form and matter of the sacrament. Show it. Show it. If you read these guys when it comes to the way in which they conceive tradition. As a source of doctrine. They're gonna write about the liturgy as a source of tradition. And the Roman Rite as extremely important when it comes to being a source of tradition. They're gonna write about this stuff. It's just you haven't read them. You haven't read them. That's why. You haven't read them. That's why you can make such basic blunders like this, that they reduce the liturgy to the bare form and matter of the sacraments. They no, they didn't. Read their sections on the tradition. And the infallibility of the church to the solemn decrees of the so- sovereign pontiff. How? Read their section of the magisterium. It really, any of this is just solved by basic skills in reading. Just being able to pick up a book and read it. Just pick up a manual and read it. Read the ones that treat tradition and the word of God. Read the ones that, tradish, uh, that treat the magisterium. Just read it. Quint Kwasniewski calls this neoscholastic reductionism. Unfortunately, since nearly everyone who came to Vatican II or who worked for the Concilium, which produced the Novus Ordo, had been brought up on this superficial neoscholastic reductionism, they felt free to rip apart and reconfigure the Roman rite as long as they kept the words of consecration more or less intact. In this regard, they were lab technicians committed all along to the result of a valid mass, but not feeling themselves ethically bound to any particular content or process. Again, this is the, no, that's wrong. You, you, you would see that the manuals speak against, um, against such ripping apart of the Roman rite and just keeping the words of consecration intact. They believe the liturgy to be a source of tradition. If you just read their section on the word of god it was because of hyper papalism that this neos excess did not feel itself bound to any process the kind of theology before vatican ii produced another overreaction in the form of neo-modernism masquerading as resource mont at and after vatican ii but if we are to face the roots of the issue with hyper uber ultramontanism we have dig deeper to find excesses that were already present when Vat, when Pius XII died. Again, the, this is the old: if the manuals were so good, why did they produce Vatican II? I can just as easily say: if the if the uh, Roman rite was so good, why did uh, why did they abandon it for the Novus Ordo? It's just it's just this what if back and forth crap. It, it doesn't mean anything. You, you, you have to treat them on their own grounds. And obviously, this isn't a treatment of them on their own grounds at all, uh, fairly. And then uh, the old, I also hate Mont to the old, everybody's wrong except me. Come on now. In our next essay, we will delve deeper in the reaction of Vatican II and how this contributed to a collapse on the very base of theology, which was a solution worse than the problem. It's just sad that anybody wrote an article like this. Okay, now let me look throughout all of these. Oh my, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, comments. Question, do you think the move towards Eastern Catholicism and online apologetics is a psyop that didn't pop up until a couple of years ago and now it's the flavor of the month? I do think so. Honestly. I think, I think it definitely is. Um, it, it's a bunch of people who are trying to escape the problems rather than deal with them. This is the mainstream trad crowd online. Oh, my gosh. So sad. Okay. I know. The reason theology Ponts, the Aquinas, Trent Horn, all advocate Eastern liturgy. Uh, it's, I, I know. It's just, it's a bit cringe if you look at the purpose behind uh, Eastern Catholicism. It's a bit cringe just abandon the rite of your baptism because you don't want to deal with the problems at home. They don't advocate anything. They just attend the divine liturgy. Stop being retarded. I, no, no, they definitely do advocate. They definitely do advocate. I mean, some some different. Um, like, you'll get reason and theology is more on the advocate side. Pines of Aquinas and Trent Horner, uh, a bit more moderate about mentioning Eastern Catholicism. Yeah, exactly. The Neoscholastics did condemn rationalism as an error of modernism in the Enlightenment. Yes. Nominalist Luther is a persistent truism in Catholic uh, thinking. I don't know why. Luther was trained in the Via Moderna of Beale, but in regard to universals, he seemed to have been a realist, even though he didn't like Aristotle or scholastic metaphysics. Yes, correct. Franzlin is awesome. So true. Franzlin is a beast. Um, although I still like aspects of Scotism, your channel has made me fall in love with Thomism again and realize that they are alike in the ways that matter. So true, King. Thank you. Thank you. I believe Luther himself claimed he was an alchemist. Well, Luther, um, like in many things, Luther was wrong about this because there's nothing (laughs) alchemite about Luther. (laughs) Uh, You should do a review of the said Contra 2-series podcast on the manual. The second part is Dr. Matthew Minard, and it's all good. Oh, cool. Um, okay i'm sorry so sorry if this was asked already but what would be a good game plan for getting started reading the manuals okay so you want to go to www.christianbwagner.com slash shop it's right off started i'm going to share my screen to show you where to where to go I should do a whole article about reading, getting started, reading the manuals. But the best place to start, and you're going to want to spend some good time here. So don't get super excited and uh, and start trying to read all the crazy ones. The good place to start is you want the you, you need. This isn't just like I want this is a need you need to have a philosophical background before you start reading theology. It's necessary. Uh, that's just the practice of the church. And if you think uh, reasonably, uh, grace builds upon nature. So if you if your nature is not good, then grace isn't going to have something to stick to, so, so to speak. That That's a very uh, weird analogy, but yeah. So you're going to first want to read Textbook of Logic. This is by Father Copens. Um, th- these are all meant for high school students back in the early 20th century. So um, it, it's good enough for, uh, almost anybody uh, who can read, can read it, uh, spent, definitely spend a lot of time it, uh, to get familiarized with textbook of logic and then textbook of moral theology. Um, and then textbook of mental philosophy. So mental philosophy, uh, it covers metaphysics, cosmology, psychology, and natural theology. So if you read these three, that's like a good solid, um, foundation of philosophy right there. And then after that, uh, start out with, with this, a systematic study of the Catholic religion. This is a, um, this is a one volume manual of theology. That's really good. And then, um, from there, uh, definitely, uh, I, I don't think, uh, when it comes to, uh, philosophy, uh, you don't know all need to know all of the super intricate details when it comes to scholastic philosophy, really, um, these three should be sufficient. Um, metaphysics, you might need a little bit more than Rickabee's work is really good with that. Um, and then after after that, if you're interested in history, there you go. But um, after that, after you're done reading Copens, definitely move on to, um, where is it? Hunter. Where did I put Hunter? Hunter should be on here somewhere. There, you, There you go. Boom. Hunter's Dogmatic Treatises. Where did I put Hunter's outlines? should be here somewhere. Crazy. I don't know where I put it. Okay, well, either way. I should probably put that back up there. I don't know where I put it. Exactly. They did critique the Scotus Waresians and followers of Giles of Rome, but they never said they were heretics. So, how is calling Flanders small brain charitable? Uh, I never said Flanders was small brain. I said what, he, what was said was small brain. Um, and objectively, that's true. So, I mean, yeah, he said the fault was small brain, not to him himself. Wait, are you against Rangelin? No, 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 no. Oh, my gosh. This is. Let me look at the, mm, the phenotype. Definitely does not pass the test. A debate is not warranted. This is an emotional reaction to an introductory article of a series not yet completed. Oh, see, then cope, dude. Just see, then cope. Get out of my comments. You're blocked. That's such, such coping. Such coping. Oh, but it's actually just the introductory article. And you actually said something he said was small brain. So that's going to hurt his feelings. And uh, actually, yeah, get out of here. You're blocked. So true. We owe basically every magisterial distinction to Thomism, but the power of Christ-based. I do think that Timothy would retract his comments if you were to listen to Christian. Exactly. That's what I was trying to do. I mean, I I wasn't trying to be trying to be rude or anything, and I said so. So stop like seething and coping. Like this is that's just so annoying. If somebody's wrong, and they're clearly wrong, which I've I've showed. If somebody is wrong, then just even even if they're your favorite person and you follow them all the time, just say they're wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Just admit it. Like there 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 doesn't need to be this like super hyper tribalism where you just have to go off on anybody who disagrees. And then take my comments uh, in, in the most uncharitable manner and call them an emotional reaction. Like, are you serious, dude? Just get out of here. Paleocrat is MT's number one fan. So true. Oh, suffice to say Timothy and I do not see eye to eye. He suffices he advocates Dr. K's cringy R and R rebrand aka Balkanize and persist. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my. So funny. <laughs> huh. show me where they advocate it. I mean like I th- I think it's just like when it comes to, I I said that there's a uh, that there's a what how did I put it? There's a range. Like when when it comes to for example all the way on the other side you'll get like Trent Horn and um Matt Fratt. They just occasionally mention it. It's not like a huge deal for them. But for like reason in theology it's a whole personality. So so that's uh I don't know where I would even go to. Uh, to I don't even know where I would go to to show you on reason and theology. It's like just I, just watch any video, um, and, and they're talking about it. Yeah, it Eastern Catholic approaches to severe childing theology have always been looked at sideways by lower authorities within the church, regardless as the encouragements by the likes of X. Yeah, when it comes to Eastern um, practices, again, I don't have any problem with. Uh, as much as I like to joke about it. Um, I don't have any problems when it comes to Eastern, um, Eastern approaches to, to liturgy, but Eastern approaches to theology. Come on, man. <laughs> that's, that's definitely sus. I mean, you know, they're kind of like schismatics and heretics. So, uh, Eastern approaches, that's like saying, um, I'm taking a Lutheran approach to theology. Like, oh man, um, that, or like an Oriental Orthodox approach to Christology. Like, oh, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't advocate that. I mean, I think um, the 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 sphere of the theologians who are in communion with the Roman Pontiff and have interacted with each other are going to be the safest path. I think that should be uncontroversial. Um, but but yeah, uh, there's 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 nothing wrong with like uh, Byzantine uh, liturgy or anything like that, or Byzantine uh, devotional practices. I, I don't think anybody with a brain would argue that there's anything wrong with that. That they're it's truly Catholic and they were in communion with Rome for, for a millennium. But this whole LARPy, copy, cringe, Orthodox in communion with Rome, like come on now. That's like me calling myself an Anglican in communion with Rome. Like, no, I'm not I'm not an Anglican in communion with Rome. I'm a true Anglican. Um, all of the Anglicans out of communion with Rome, they're not Anglican. Just like all of the Orthodox out of communion with Rome, they ain't Orthodox. Come on now. I forgot. Christian thinks Palamas is a heretic. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 He's a heretic, for sure. Hundred percent. It's more uh, of a liturgical abuse, in my view. Uh Timothy will always be my friend. He's the big dog at a uh, meeting of Catholic, but this is definitely an issue that divides us. It's a core issue being the central issue in our live stream debate over Mass of the Ages. Oh, you had a live stream debate over Mass of the Ages? How did I not know about this? Paleocrat, how did I not know about this? Yes, I am Christian's number one fan. So true. Uh, does knowledge of Latin help with the manuals, or are the English translations adequate? Are there many of which are untranslated? Yes, there are many that are untranslated. Uh, there's, there. I'd say there's a sufficient amount for your average, um, like your your average more. Um, how how do I put this? Recreational theologian, but I mean, if you're if you're gonna want to do professional theology, there's plenty of untranslated works that need to be read, um, for sure. For sure there's plenty of untranslated works that need to be read and a significant issue uh, more so than I think when it comes to the untranslated aspect to it is the fact that Latin is important for the Catholic church because Latin is the theological language which the church speaks and language is very important when it comes to the way in which theological disputes are settled the way in which doctrines are defined So this is why uh, the church has so stringently kept the Latin until the 20th century, because even when it wasn't used as a common language, it's still the theological language which the church speaks. And so many times in the past and so many times in the present and in the future, you're going to have misunderstandings between theologians of different languages because terms... Sometimes don't necessarily translate over well between languages, which is why that we need to ultimately just return to Latin and stop this silliness of vernacular uh, translations. Put everybody in Catholic schools, uh, force the U.S. government to give over all the public schools to the church um, and then make them teach all the kids Latin. So we don't have this silly problem of not being able to speak to one another or be able to write uh, works, theological works to one another. Yeah, that's just that's just the plan. Ooh, Palamism. That's a little spicy, Xander. You're saying even Palamism. It's because Michael is naturally Greek Christian. Yeah, I think uh, it's also because he has the um the background in orthodoxy too. So like it, it's kind of understandable when it comes to Michael. I understand it. Sick of the fanatical palism. So true, King. Perhaps Anglican converts can save the current liturgy. So true. Oh, it was on your Telegram. It's presently set to private on YouTube, but I can give you the link. I'm also talking to oh here and hoping to dialogue with him when you do. That'd be great. Yeah, definitely send me the link. we still need to do uh, we still need to do a thing with one another. We can I, I can I can talk to you about my my questions that I have about Catholic presuppositionalism, and then I'm sure your audience would find something of interest from what I say. So true, so true. If Palamism was an acceptable form of Roman Catholic theology, why did all the Greeks who became Unions write against Palamas and instead subscribe to Thomism or some sort of Franciscan position? So true. Get him, King. Get him. Yeah, I, I think it's just the 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 blanket. Uh, again, it's just it's difficult to even if it's it should be unquestioned that if by Palamism, you're talking about a real distinction. So, a distinction preceding the consideration of the mind between essence and energies. And it should be clear that that's obviously polytheism and it's heretical, and the church has condemned it on multiple occasions. It's clear. So, but if by, if by that you mean some sort of, um, I've seen people interpret Palamas as a um, what would be known as a formal distinction or what would be known as a virtual distinction, then yeah, go, go ahead, man, go off. Just, uh, just go for it. Uh, Who's to blame for the homo heresy though, if not pushy Roman Catholics. Well, Satan is to blame for the homo heresy, and probably Germans too. Germans are always sus. Like, what's even more sus than um, than Eastern is definitely German. German Catholics are most sus. And if he's venerated, then we have to take it as a virtual distinction. Yeah. And then there's the question of if Palamas even existed. There, that's like actually a live question. Like, did Palamas even exist? Like, was there one writer of the triads? So, there you go. Okay, well, I have to get going. I got to get dinner and then get to work. Which is a reminder that you should go to patreon.com slash Thomas to become a patron of me. So, I don't have to go to work. Because I didn't let you guys know this. i will probably have a, a stream to celebrate. But I am now officially down from five nights of work a week to four nights of work a week, thanks to all of your wonderful contributions. So keep that up. You like what I do, and uh, he didn't exist. Oh yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole stream. The question of that the oh man, Ortho Twitter would just be just explode if I told you guys about how Palomas might not have existed that (laughs) it's it's like a it's a serious question whether he actually existed or not. Um yeah but uh yeah that's that's uh maybe I'll do some research for that and uh and do uh do a stream about whether Palamos existed. That seems to be something people are interested in. But thank you. God bless and remember remember it is Trinity tide. So we worship one God in Trinity in Trinity in unity.